Hello, you're listening to No Such Word as Can't with me, Hazel McBride. I was always told growing up that there was no such word as can't, and I genuinely believe that that mentality instilled a belief in me that anything was possible if I just set my mind to it. As someone who started off with a seemingly impossible dream and somehow made it my reality, I want to help more people achieve their goals by giving them actionable advice, as well as sharing stories from others who have done the same. Today, I get to sit down with someone who has worked with marine mammals all over Europe and definitely knows his stuff about animal training. Please welcome Peter Gilgem. How are you? Welcome to the podcast. That was a great introduction. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm so happy to have you. You have so much wisdom and knowledge and have worked, you know, at so many places. I can't wait to see what you share with my listeners. It has been quite the journey so far, I can tell you that much, yes. And it has been quite something, you know, so if I think back at the last, what is it now? 15 years, 17 years, whatever, mm -hmm. something like this. So, mm -hmm. And where, where I've traveled to, what, what I've seen, what I've done, yeah, it's, it's I, now, to be honest, now I'm getting older, <laughs> I'm starting to reflect about, hey, Peter, what has actually happened in the past years, what you know, like, what have you experienced? And there's mm -hmm. quite some, quite some experiences that I have. And I'm like, yeah, that was actually pretty cool. Yeah, well, we're, we're definitely going to get into a lot of those experiences. But for my listeners that might not know who you are or where you came from, because they will definitely pick up on that on that accent. Um, can you just <laughs> give a little brief summary of who you are, where you're from, and where you maybe are now? Yes, of course. So my name is Peter Gilgem. I'm from the Netherlands on the, the far south, which nobody knows, but it's along the ocean side. It's a very beautiful place. That's where I'm from. Now, I'm work, I've worked in the marine mammal world for, I think, about 12 years or something. And then I moved over to the zoo world. But I started in a zoo in the center of the Netherlands, which is called Awan Zoo. I started with sea lions out there. Um, that's where I got my weakness for sea lions, which I still have <laughs> secretly, which nobody knows. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Till now. Anyway, so um, that was sea lions. And then I always had a dream to work with killer whales. So at, the, at my 12th year of age, I already said to my mom, I want to do this. And she was a bit like skeptical. But anyway, so then after conferences, meeting people and so on, so on, so on, I moved to Canada for two years where I worked with sea lions, belugas, dolphins. They did have killer whales there, which I didn't work with out there. But then two years after I worked there, I went to Laurel Park, which is where I worked with killer whales for the first time, which was like dream come true. Then after one and a half year, I left. Then I moved to France for a year, also working with killer whales. And then I left the killer whale dream job. And then I went to Sweden, where I, which is where I worked for five and a half years, something like this. And I ended up implementing the whole... Um, training system based on open conditioning reinforced methods and everything throughout the whole zoo so that was from building an, a protective contact system for elephants to training a lions a pride of 14 lions in a, a six acre exhibit to come in in any emergency case um, you, you name it also and then after that I moved back to the Netherlands and now I'm working in uh, Dierpark Amersfoort which is fairly in the center of the Netherlands as also, well where I'm yeah. also building the animal training program so yeah so I'm doing this for about 17 years um, I have my own company too it's suspenseful which is which is what I started in 2015 
and actually the reason that I started this one is because I discovered there were so many things that you know we did in the marine mammal world which did not happen in the zoo world and and vice versa it was like you know mm-hmm. what? why are we reinventing the wheel all the time let me just write articles about it to give people ideas and, and that's expanded to now me organizing my own conference to do consulting work around the world to yep. you name it all so that's where i'm at now so i'm doing now the consulting job plus the zoo job yeah sky's the limit there yeah yeah <laughs> but if you guys haven't um obviously we'll get into the marine mammal training versus you know zoo training a little bit later um, but if you guys haven't seen the recall video on youtube with your with the pride of lions at Colmarden that you were just talking about it's incredibly impressive um whenever i teach recall um with my mentees i always refer them to that video i'm like look it's not with marine mammals but this is this is what you need of a recall so if you haven't seen it go and youtube it because it's definitely worth a watch but you said that when you were 12 years old you already knew that you wanted to work with killer whales and you did end up doing that by going and working at Laura Park so how did you get the job there it's quite a story because like I discovered that I wanted to well I was the luck one of these lucky people that knew on an early age what I wanted to do so many people don't don't know this yet but I I knew this on a very early age. And the thing is, is that I knew for a hundred percent, not a little bit. I just knew that I got a lot of questions from people at school, uh, teachers, you name it. They said to me, but what if it doesn't happen? I was like, I don't think about what if, because it's just going to happen. So you can say what you want. So, and I remember that when I got the job that I called the teachers to say, oh. hello, <laughs> <laughs> it's worked out. Yeah. So that's what I did. But then, the thing was, in, you know, I, I started my job in Awan Zoo in 2005. And in 2008, I went to my first conference, which was the IMATA conference. And they sent me there. And IMATA stands for International Marine Animal Trainers Association, which is what I in, later on was very involved with. But um, I was there. And the thing that I did, I was this, this blonde Dutch guy. Like, you know, we speak English, yes, but it's very surface English. So I was there, very poor English. And I just decided, like a lot of the Dutch people speak English very well. It's it's pretty okay, but like if you're telling me now that I have an accent, back in the day I had like a full <laughs> blown up accent. <laughs> I still have one, but anyway. So then I decided, you know, the thing was that the year before my other colleagues were to the went to the Amanda conference, they were talking about this one specific person. I was like, all right, I'm gonna search for this one specific person, and on the way. I actually met um, quite some more people. Now that person was Michael Hunt back in the day. Mm. And then I just went to every table and I was just like, hello, my name is Peter. I work with Zoologists in, in the Netherlands. What do you do? And that's how I met the, the zoological director of SeaWorld, you know, um, Brad Andrews. That's how I met Chuck Tompkins. That's how I met so many people. It was incredible. And I also mm-hmm. met Mike Bunn. Now Mike Bunn has been a, 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 a huge influence in the next couple of years from that moment on. So then from there, I decided, you know what? I need to f- see if I can do the next steps. Now, killer whales are not in the Netherlands. We have uh, dolphins in the Netherlands, a dolphin am I right? So I have to now find a way to stay in the marine mammal business and to see how I can move up the ladder for me to work to, ki- to go to killer whales. So, and I remember that Mike Bunn told me, well, Peter, why don't you come to Canada? And I was like, why do I come to Canada? I said, what am I supposed to do there? 
And then I looked up where he worked and so on. And then I decided, you know what, I'm going to apply or I'm going to do open applications to about 50 to 60 parks every four or five months. So that's what I have been doing till I got about five, six responses back. And one of them was Canada. And the Canada one was actually a, a, a good step up for me. It was a seasonal job. So I went from a full-time sea line job to a seasonal job there. The reason I took it was because that gave me a dolphin experience and beluga experience. And I was confident enough of my skill set that they would keep me for another year. So that's why I did it. Um, then, so I showed myself what I could do. And then eventually my, my contract was extended as a seasonal. I was there over winter time, eventually also the season after, which was super nice. But then I remember that um, uh, one of the killer whales at Marineland um, Canada, which is where I worked in Niagara Falls, uh, had to go back to zero because it was on loan of zero. And the thing was that they, uh, Mike Bunn was one of the trainers there and he, through a difficult situation, he actually also went uh, over to work for Cyril, but then in Laurel Park. So then after two years, my contract started to end as well. Although my contract, not necessarily, but my visa, my working visa. And if you work for two years in Canada, then you need to have your, uh, residency and to get your residency is super difficult to get if you're like from another country mm -hmm. so now it was like okay what now because now it's for me 25 percent chance to get that but if i don't get it i have to leave the country within a week and my oh, wow. visa yeah my visa stops in june and then they told me if your visa stops in june but you're still in canada and it's still on the progress to get your residency, the moment that they didn't give you an answer, you can stay in Canada. But I didn't know for how long. Mm -hmm. And when they make the decision, I have to leave within seven days. Yeah. So I was kind of locked in Canada all of a sudden. So I, I decided, you know what, I need to have yeah, more securance of my mm -hmm. of, of my job. So and then mm -hmm. I knew Mike Bunn. And Mike Bunn told me, well, Peter, you know what? They're looking for a kilowatt trainer here. Why don't you come this way? I was mm -hmm. like, okay. So I... <laughs> redid my uh, resume I, I made it all nice again and i sent it out and then they they actually we started to discuss and then i went over so i i <laughs> jumped a hole in the sky <laughs> like, yeah yes it finally <laughs> worked so then when was i think in yeah somewhere in, in july or something i think i started to work there which was very nice as my first killer world job and that was seven years after i started working with sea lines and what was it like, you know, be you're you're suddenly you've made it, like you said, the the dream job that you always wanted. You get to Laurel Park in Tenerife, you pull on the wetsuit, you go up around the pool, you see the whales for the first time as a trainer. How do you feel? Yeah, I feel like I felt like it was a big empowerment to myself because I was like, look, I've made it. This is fantastic. And I'm with this with this one trainer who was like still a friend of mine Jose and I was there and I'm just like with him and he's explaining me all these things about these wills and I'm just like I'm not sure if you, I even listened because I was just like oh, you know the sound of this blowhole the, yeah. the animals and I'm just like what's going on this is fantastic mm -hmm. so it is amazing it when you when you start as a trainer because even though like you've been to parks you've seen killer reels before until you're actually right in front of them suddenly they seem so much bigger and so much more impressive and just like you said like the noise of the blowhole when you're in like the stadium as as a visitor 
it's not the same as if you're standing right in front of them. No, it's, it, it's heavy. And I have to say, well, heavy in a good sense, but it's, you know, I have to say, same to, you know, I've worked with them for two and a half years, which is still not very long. Uh, but, you know, like the, the, the effort you put in a relationship, you know, the, the effort you put in your understanding how your trainer skills will develop and how all of that works with the right steps and what you can all do. And, you know, eventually they signed me up to Morgan, which is the, the, the deaf killer will. And I work with her for almost like, well, one and a half year, almost straight through. But it's, you know, if people ask me, so how was it or how is it to work with killer whales or, you know, and you have all these controversial things, I have a difficult time explaining how it is because it was so, you know, it, it, it's so powerful. It, it's such a, a bond you create. It, it's you learn so much. You, it's incredible. And, you know. Yeah, again, I do not really have words for how that was and how that first interaction was with this specific killer whale. But therefore, like for me, like, you know, as of today, if somebody tells me, Peter, which animal is who you would miss a lot in your career and now you moved so much? Well, I have to give a lot of credits to Morgan also because mm -hmm. she, you know, she, she taught me a lot. And she, like, I have the feeling that we had a very special bond in comparison to other trainers. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's an animal that I would miss very much. Yeah, but she's definitely so a very special animal. Yeah, Morgan mm -hmm. for sure. Uh, she's not one you will forget in a hurry. Uh, she also, you know, has a very emotive story. Did you ever visit her when, or, or maybe you were probably in Canada at that point when she was in Harderbike? Yeah, so I've never, I've never seen her in Harvard. The interesting thing is that a good friend of mine, Philip, which uh, who I who I met in 2009. So beside my work, what I've done a lot as well is just ask companies or ask Aquarius to come and visit to see how they train their animals. So I've been to Miami Sea Aquarium, to um, Georgia Aquarium a couple of days, to SeaWorld San Diego, Orlando. I've been to Six Legs Discovery Kingdom, back in the day, Shuka was there. I just asked, can I come over and see how you work your animals? And then I would be there a couple of days. And I did the same with Colmarten in Sweden back in that day. And that's where I met Philip. So, and then um, eventually they were looking for another killer whale trainer in Laurel Park. And um, I knew Philip, one of his, his not, necessarily, not necessarily dreams, but his idea was, I still want to work one day with Kilos just to see how that is. Mm -hmm. So and then I then I asked him to come over, but he was actually at that point at Dolphinarium Harderwijk for two years, working, well, not necessarily working hands-on, but he was there where Morgan was as well. So he mm -hmm. knew that story. He was kind of part of it somehow, somewhere, and then he came over. So that's how I knew all the other stories and me talking yeah. with the Dolphinarium guys as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so for I anyone that's listening who doesn't necessarily know the story of Morgan, you know, she was rescued off the coast of the Netherlands and she was taken to the Harderbike Dolphinarium in the Netherlands to be rehabilitated. But, you know, due to her young age, et cetera, um, she was deemed non-releasable and was taken to Laurel Park where she still currently lives. Um, you were very involved in the kind of research and the figuring out about her hearing impairment. Um, so can you talk us through a little bit of that? It's, yeah, it was, you know, 
the difficult thing was, and that was, I think, for everybody the case that, you know, um, you have like a lot of people screaming, you know, she has to, the, the family has to be found or whatever. Now, I'm a very much, especially as of today, I'm a very objective person these days, just because I'm very focused on, oh, I can reinforce his behavior. I can't reinforce emotions, feelings, you name it all. So mm-hmm. I'm very much into that science idea of, you know, we have to factual look at things to mm-hmm. make a decision about specific things. So now that was the same thing in this case with Morgan, you know, we can all scream, yes, she's deaf or whatever. But the question is not if she's deaf. The question is how much can she hear Mm -hmm. or how much how much can't she hear? So and that's what that was the study was about. Now, you know, we've we've done that. We've done it underwater at the start. We had to teach her to have various uh, sensors, one on the melon, one behind the blowhole and one on her back, which would like have these uh, electrode things going through, passing through. And from out there, you could see actually if specific frequencies would be received, yes or no. The issue is what we did underwater and underwater, you can still hear the other whales. You can still hear filtration systems once Mm -hmm. in a while. So so there was a lot of like background noise, which you didn't want. Eventually um, we did it differently, but we had this, we had this target built and the supervisor was actually pretty proud of this because it was a cool target. We would hang it onto the fence and it would stick out on the water and there would be a plate which she had to touch. And that was about one and a half meter below the surface. And then from there, like we had these um, sensors attached. So what we did first, we would ask her to come to us, put her in a lineup, we would step over the wall, we put these sensors and then we would send her to that target. And then she would just sit there underwater beautiful to watch and then we would try to get our data to come out of it but because of the noises it didn't really work the way we wanted to so eventually we tested something differently but we did that first with some other whales so i think it was skylar kohana i think one of the the, the two uh, two animals that were also there uh, we put one on the lower jaw and on the top of the melon so now they could send these signals to one another and from there you could actually see which uh, frequency she would respond to and which she wouldn't. And we could see exactly a different, completely different pattern with Morgan as in comparison with the other ones. So we had to train her for this, obviously. But then also we had to ask her to slide out of the water on the stage or uh, at any other place, then attach these things and then do it, take them off and ask her to go back. So that's what we all trained her to do to be able to get that uh, specific outcome that what what we needed to know yeah um, so and yes she was deaf to an extent so she could hear something but not in the same range as the other killer whales would do and therefore we could suggest that hey you know what she's actually not hearing the other whales but she does hear this frequency the question mm-hmm. is do the rest hear that frequency as well yes or no So that's how you kind of try to objectively figure out Mm -hmm. what was going on. Yeah, I mean, we we always we always said when we were there, like she can hear something (laughs) like she's not 100 percent completely deaf. You know, she would. And like personally, I think she can probably sense vibrations as well, because whenever Mm -hmm. the gates, you know how heavy the gates at Laura Park were and they would Mm -hmm. like hit against the wall whenever they opened, like she would turn her head. You know, like when that gate banged on the wall, she would turn and look, you know, so she can hear, you know, some things, but yeah, the other, the other whales, I don't know. And Morgan, I don't know if she was the same when you were there as when I was there. She's so vocal, mm-hmm. so vocal. She was, you know, she, she was, she was for us as well. And, you know, 
eventually you could discriminate very easily when she was vocal out of potential frustrating behavior or if she would vocal because she was extremely playful. We saw a huge difference there, which was fun to see, like, you know, and, and she eventually what I what I did was, you know what, I was very fascinated about by her just because you have a, a, a killer whale who's apparently deaf. So we test her, we discovered this now and then, okay, now we know this and now what? And then I was like, you know what, but I'm very interested in her behavior because she behaved differently than the rest of the whales. So I decided Massively. to look up. <laughs> I decided to look up, okay, you know what, what is this? And then I looked up, you know, how do deaf people respond in a social world that we live in? Mm -hmm. So I started to look this up and I, and I know as a trainer, what you don't want to do is be anthropomorphistic and stuff, but there is no other comparison. So mm -hmm. let's just go that way. And then I discovered that deaf people in general are, they have less patience in comparison to people that can hear. So it's like, okay, so if something's going on, it's very hard for, for deaf people to keep their patience to an extent that they can wait, 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 or things that are happening, you know, there's too much things going on for them. So when I reflected mm -hmm. it back to Morgan and all of a sudden, a lot of puzzle pieces came in place. It's like, yeah, that aha. makes total sense. <laughs> out of the blue, it's like, ah, okay, wait, stop, stop everybody. So when I tried to figure out, all right, so... Uh, we used obviously like um, uh, the system of operant conditioning with the emphasis on positive reinforcement. That was our whole training goal. <laughs> you know, you don't want to do anything else with a killer whale. Absolutely but, not. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so that's what, what we did. And then I started to look and then every time, like normally, and I'm not sure if your listeners are, um, uh, are okay with training terms. I can explain it very quickly. But what we did was, or at least what we saw was if Morgan would have an, how we call it, an incorrect response to the signal. So I would say, you know, go jump. And she would do something else. Then she had an incorrect response to my signal. Now that can have a thousand reasons. It can have that another killer whale did something to her. It can be the bird flew over it. It can be a thousand reasons. I don't know. She just responded incorrect how we would say. So now we can decide because you can all you don't want to have them in frustration whatsoever. So therefore the LRS is invented back in the day. Now the LRS stands for least reinforcing scenario, which basically tells the animal it's okay that you make a mistake. As long as you're with me and motivated to keep going, you have a chance of reinforcement. That's all it is. So your goal as a trainer is to do the to do the least amount of LRSs. You don't want to do those oh, yeah, ones for in sure. your training whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Lisma. Now, the interesting thing with Morgan was, is that um, with the other kid was, we would, we would say, hey, go jump. The jump was incorrect for whatever reason. All right, you know, IRS, I reinforce. Now I'll try to jump again. And nine of the 10 times that that killer well would actually succeed in uh, the behavior after. With Morgan, it was different. She would not succeed and she would not succeed again. So it was like, okay, so now I can keep on asking, but that's not working. So with her, the better choices were, first of all, obviously you don't want to, uh, you don't want to do the minimal amount of LRSs as explained before, but if you had to, the best thing to do was just ask her for an extremely easy behavior. Give me your pack or touch a target. I reinforce you again. And now let's try again. And your success rate would go up. Like, yeah. I don't know how much. Mm -hmm. now, and that was Morgan. And beside that Morgan enjoyed, seemed to enjoy, um, the playfulness that you know the, the 
the things that she wouldn't expect you to do throughout play and you know planning your reinforcement without her knowing it and you know um the rub down sessions if you would do that right well your relationship was very strong i think i had a strong relationship but we should ask morgan about this (laughs) (laughs) if only we could (laughs) if only we could exactly but you know and that that has that has taught me a lot during the years after and still as of today which i still bring with me with uh with the animals i work with today Mm -hmm. and i know that you're very passionate about animal training specifically Mm -hmm. and obviously working with a deaf animal brings its own challenges you know you spoke a little bit about her personality there um you know going hand in hand with the lrs and with reinforcement you also have the bridge um which you know for most people i think will you know associate that with a whistle uh, the whistle that trainers always wear around their necks. But, you know, if Morgan's deaf, she can't hear that whistle. So that presents a training challenge in and of itself. So can you explain a little bit about how Laurel Park overcame that with Morgan? Right. Yeah. So, no, for, you know, the thing was is that she couldn't, she couldn't hear. So that means the whistle is not going to work. Now, to let you guys all know, like exactly what Hazel says, a whistle is basically the bridge. So you know, for many, uh, they also call it the marker, or you can say the clicker. It's exactly the same. I can make anything a marker if I want to, anything. So in Morgan's case, that was a hand signal. I remember that even in, uh, I think it was Dolphin Plus in Florida, they used a water hose as a marker for an animal that was blind and deaf. Um, which was interesting. So, but when I came to uh, to Laura Park, they already implemented a hand signal as an, an, a marker, which marked the behavior. You're, you, you've done it right. Come back to uh, default behavior or control to receive the next information, which could be a reinforcer, your favorite behavior, or anything. Um, the, the the hardest part of a hand signal is and. You know, within a behavior, you can mark the behavior on specific points. So if I want to have an, an, a better takeoff, then I would blow my whistle on a better takeoff. If I want them to dive deeper, to jump higher, I can blow my whistle that they are diving deeper. With Morgan, you can't. So what we had to do was, okay, I ask you for a jump. The second after I ask her to jump, I could mark the response time because she would still look at me while she goes up with her head and try to dive down. She would actually look at me and mm-hmm. then dive down because that's the moment I sometimes would mark mm-hmm. it to get a strong response to my, uh, to, my, to my marker. But then it stopped because if she's underwater, I can't see anything, nothing. Mm-hmm. So she can't see me. So we then let her know by a, a slap with the target, a big stick with the ball in the end. On the water, you know, that's where you have to jump. And then we slowly would obviously train the target away. But then when she just gets out of the water, which is the position of the jump, I could mark again. Then I could mark the peak. And then when she falls into the water, unless I have an, a, a window, I could mark as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, so there were only specific moments. So for us to teach her to dive deep down, we couldn't mark this. So what did we do? We used another killer whale to help her out. That's kind of how we did it because we would then ask, you know what? That animal already understands that jump. Uh, Morgan understands the actual jump, but we wanted to have her to go deeper. So you know mm-hmm. what? Let's send her with another animal, then blow the whistle, which the other animal hears, 
they would both then come back because Morgan would follow the animal that hears that whistle. They both come back and we would reinforce it right away. So that's how we solved that problem. But it was very, yeah, then it was very advanced thinking because I had to communicate with the other trainer. We had of to course. see the, you know, the, the, the social relationship between the two mm-hmm. and then see, okay, what are we exactly going to do? Plus you potentially have other trainers training other kennels in that same yeah. exhibit so mm-hmm. it, it was very advanced but we would if the behavior was about 75 percent finished the 25 percent would you know let's connect it to another animal then mm-hmm. finish it and then ask her by herself again so we know also that she can do it 100 percent on her own so there was a different strategy and we use yeah. a lot of different ways of, of doing it yeah so when did the when did that evolve into the light bridge so at one point, what we've done was we extended the program kind of Dolphin M. Hardwijk, who, who already had a specific system, um, and we extended that. And I also remember, to, to uh, a little side story, I also remember that I was in 2013, I went to the IMATA conference. Once again, I think it was my fifth conference already or something. And I, I went there once again, and then I decided, you know what, the year before, Dolphin M. Harag had presented about Morgan, about that whole story about her. She was in the Wadensee, the north of the Netherlands, how she got there, how they work with her and so on. So I decided, you know what, why don't we present at the conference and talk about how is she doing right now and what's happening with her right now? So I asked Philip if he wanted to come with me and we built this whole presentation about her and show look, if I ask her to jump and I slap the water, she doesn't respond. But if I do that with with another animal, the other animal does respond. So if I put them together and I slap, they will now respond. So and all these little ideas. That's why I also spoke about the, the bridge itself with the hand signal, what our difficulties were in that sense. And, and the cool thing is we've done that presentation and we won the People's Choice Award. So that was the, like the biggest award that you can get at the conference like mm-hmm. this. So we were very happy. We were second in the behavioral award, I think. So it was pretty cool for us that that, that happened. Um, now, and then after, when we got back, we slowly it started to think more and more about how can we then uh, train proper recalls? Because the cool thing of like this killer world group was they had underwater tones. Yeah. Not the killer whales itself, but like the, the training system had underwater tones, which mm-hmm. told the animals, like, whatever you're doing, come to this position, which was the stage area. And I'm not going to lie, you know, as a spotter on the stage with that tone box, and you've got like seven different buttons that you can push. And if you have six whales and trainers all asking for different things, it uh, it becomes a little bit of a nightmare. I'm not going to lie. It's, it's pretty heavy. Exactly. It's pretty heavy. So I've actually, to be honest, I've only done this box two or three times. I was <laughs> nine or 10 times. I was with Morgan. I was on stage. I was doing other things. So I luckily I didn't have that stress too much. But um, in Marineland, I did it more often because it was just one button and that yeah. was it. That was much more manageable, um, much more manageable. It was you easy. don't have a, it was an overwater bridge, underwater bridge. <laughs> exactly. You have overwater light bridge, underwater light bridge, and a recall. And you're, you way, you're just trying to watch six trainers and six whales and then know where your thumbs have to push. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, but then the thing was that, like, this tone underwater, what, what we would give either as a bridge for the rest or another tone to recall them back to stage, yep. that recall back to stage was my idea to apply that to the lions in Colmar. Well, mm-hmm. I was like, you know what? If they can do it with killer whales, mm-hmm. we can do that with lions. Come on. 
-hmm. So that's how we kind of how we took that idea and said, you know what, let's mm -hmm. put it in the zoo and see what happens. And then we got like the success we yeah. had. Anyway, so then uh, we discovered too, yeah, we can press that button on the water, but for Morgan, it doesn't do anything. Zero, unless she's jumping with another animal. So then yeah. we're like, okay, how are we going to solve this? And that's the moment that they thought about a light bridge. And the discussion then was, okay, we can do a light bridge, no problem, but it has some criteria because <laughs> um, the light bridge has to be on and off like this. Yeah, so you quick. can't have a light that warms up, mm -hmm. goes, it's not going to work. It has to be manageable. Mm -hmm. So that's how they came with this prototype and using these LED lights, which just like smacked on and off. Yeah, they flashed we, very quickly. Very quickly. And then we used this one first with the idea to put them then underwater at stationary areas in specific mm -hmm. spots. Uh, but we just built the prototype or the, the supervisor did back then. And then we train it and see how that would work. We started it with a fluke wave. The cool thing is, is that, well, the cool thing, I'm pretty proud of this. When I was there, I trained Morgan quite some behavior, including the fluke wave, including the ventral bow, including the fluke splash, the, the, the depth charts, how they call it. Now, fluke splash is when they uh, swim vertically and they splash the people that's mm -hmm. the one I, i've done you have the depth charge when they swim on the surface and they smack the fluke on the water so mm -hmm. you're like boom, boom yeah very cool well, trained her many different things and then my first one was actually the fluke wave that i trained her and that's the behavior we, we used right away with the uh, with the light because when she does the fluke wave, a normal killer whale would be straight on the water so the tail would be here mm -hmm. morgan was like this so, so she was a little bent. Exactly. And she would look up. So she was basically doing that all the so time. She, yeah, because she was trying to see. She was already probably she looking was, as if, like, I'm waiting for a bridge. Yeah. yeah. She was continuously looking at, okay, when does that bridge come? Mm -hmm. So that's what she had learned. And now we just connected the light bridge and this bridge together. Okay. And then from there, we extended that. But mm -hmm. the issue came still, like, you know, that imagine you're asking her to jump e either ventral which is belly up in the sky or normal which is belly to the water if you make her jump and then I, I we were not putting ourselves in the position to say you know what I quickly put that light in the water to to bridge her because if she didn't see it she would go jump mm -hmm. so then you would be in a very bad position so we only did it with the fluke wave at that time mm -hmm. we did it with uh, some other behaviors where she had to pay attention to that specific um yeah specific i mean it's excellent training it really is and it also allows for a lot of variability with the other animals because eventually you know when i was there all of the other whales were now trained on light bridge as well mm -hmm. as the whistle bridge and we would just use them all kind of interchangeably um right. so you know you do have an excellent foundation in animal training and you're you're obviously very passionate about it yes. you know you you've mentioned before you started your own company called zoo Spenceful, and you know now you're working as an animal training coordinator for zoos um so tell me a little bit about how zoo Spenceful came into fruition well you know I the thing was like I'm very passionate about that training. I'm continuously busy with this. I sometimes have to stop myself and try to do other things so it's not a 500% job. But um, you know, I'm I want to I want the animals to have the best experience possible. And I remember Jim Mackey from London Zoo once saying and that was actually in 2015 at the Scottish Zookeeper Conference, which is where I did one of my first talks, and he was saying 
everything we do should be a welfare benefit to our animals. And that kept with me. And then I thought, ah, wait a second, everything we do. So, and then I started to see different training worlds. So I went from the marine mammal world, then in, in uh, Sweden, I was then 2015. They asked me, Peter, do you wanna, uh, Philip was my actual boss back then. And he said to me, Peter, you wanna be the head trainer of the dolphin arm or do you wanna be the animal training coordinator? And I didn't know yet. So I was like, ah, oh, whatever. And I thought about it and I thought, you know what? It's better for me to be the animal training coordinator than the head of the dolphin arm because of, yeah, you know, because of training is such a passionate thing. And as a head trainer of dolphin arm, there was more to it than training animals. Of course, yeah. So, so, and, and that, that I was not very good at the other part. So I said, such, you know, let me do this. And then I discovered a different world. So you have the, the elephant culture training world. You have the falconry training world. You have the camel stuff. You have the, the, the ape things. You have the car and everybody does it differently. And everybody thinks they're doing it the best way. Okay. Then I thought, that's weird because at the end of the story, you have Mr. Pavlov, classical conditioning. You have Mr. Skinner, opera conditioning. There's behavioral science here. And th that's undiscussable. Behavioral the science is that science of behavior, period. So, but why do still people say, no, 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 no. You train a bird differently. It's like, no, not whatsoever. It's the same. You can explain everything through behavioral science. Mm -hmm. everything if you like it or not it doesn't matter but you can explain everything so then i thought this is just strange because you now have in all these different cultures you have basically one speaks chinese the other one speaks dutch the other one speaks russian the other ones it's like huh but doesn't know doesn't anybody understand that you guys speak the exact same language and that's the moment i thought okay I'm gonna try. I'm going to try through inspiring stories to just write down what what I discover, how I think, and how I'm believing that the science functions with any animal we work with, any mm -hmm. animal. And I try to inspire and motivate people to do this, and try to get the chances for myself to be able to reach that. And then I put quite some pressure on me because I said to myself, okay, the zoo that I worked at, they did still free contact with the elephants. They did the falconry very, uh, you know, traditionally everything, same for, for the camels back then and stuff. And they, with the lions as well, they chased them inside back in the day. And we wanted to change that. And through the Stefan, mm -hmm. he was a, a very big character in, in this whole program. Slowly, step by step, I started to change these worlds together with those teams to make sure that everything we do is a welfare benefit and not yeah. just because. Mm -hmm. And I started to write about this. And the, the cool thing was that Coleman allowed me to write about it, share the video. So they were very supportive. Amazing. Mm -hmm. and then did you have there, a lot of did you have a lot of pushback from the keepers? I have, you know, the thing that maybe didn't want to change. The, the thing was that because Philip was my boss at the Dolphinarium already at the same zoo. And he became the boss of all zookeeper uh, departments and of the mm -hmm. zookeepers. Now, Philip's mindset is very similar to mine. He's just like, if it works with them, why shouldn't we do it with them? Yeah. So he was, he was telling me, Peter, listen, you have this job, figure it out. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. so then I was like you know what but this Peter you have this job figure it out and I was like but if we do it this Peter that's your job not mine figure it out <laughs> like, okay 
So, and that gave me so much freedom. The mm -hmm. thing was that we worked from the top down. So Philip was very much into that. We want to extend the welfare of the animals in the zoo throughout the behavioral program. He said, Peter, that's now your responsibility. Okay, that's fine. Then we got the team leaders of each department, or the, we call them, they're the curators of each department to mm -hmm. come together. And then we had to get them on board, which was pretty easy as well. And then the zookeepers. Now we knew, we knew that, look, people are going to fall off because everybody has their own ideologies, especially mm. with working with animals. So, but we had, we had, we're going this way because we think that's the best for the animals. You like it? Good. Come with us. You don't like it? Well, then the question was, what can I do to make you come with us on that train? Mm -hmm. If you still don't want to, now you have to ask yourself, okay, what, what, yeah, what do you want to stay here? You want to go? We're going. Mm -hmm. So what can I do to keep you coming? And if not, well, maybe you should either find something else or no idea, but we are going. And with the curators on board, it worked very well. So now, for the listeners, if you're ever in that position like I was, don't ever start from the bottom. You always <laughs> want to start from the top down yeah. and not from the zookeepers up because that's a fight that's not going to work. Mm -hmm. Never, ever. So you always want to go from, you know what? What does the zoo want? All right, then we start. Then from there, we're going to go slowly. Okay, can we get all the team leaders to understand the same thing yes so now how can i help to help their program to develop that way all right now that's the one then the zookeepers all right let's figure out what the knowledge is so we're going to do presentations for them and we're going to talk to them about okay what do you do today how can we make it better because we're not we're not changing things because they're bad no we're changing what was good to make it better and that eventually empowers them but if you start the opposite way yeah, yeah you get collisions and that's not what you want mm -hmm. as a golden tip from no absolutely <laughs> like that makes total sense um and you know i can imagine that there's so many different challenges that the zoo world you know presents for training so you know how did you decide what was really important for you you know to train with each with different species you know there's there's still, you know, I, I'm very much into the modern zoo. Now, I was in, where was it? I thought I was 18, I think. I was invited in Australia. And I did, I was one of the keynote speakers there together with, with, with three other phenomenal people. And, you know, it was from Victoria Zoo. And that's three zoos out there. And the, the director had a speech about, like, welfare papers and about how important welfare is. And they were very pushing this forward in all three of the zoos. And she wrote a book about this. And the cool thing is we all got a book with a, with a little story in there for like, very personal. And I started to read this book. Now, and I was already very busy with welfare. I started to build a welfare program within the zoo in Sweden as well to, to figure out, you know what, it's all nice and good. We all talk about welfare in the zoo. It's fantastic. But if I ask 10 different people what is welfare, I get a different answer. Mm -hmm. they're, they're still right, but we also have to talk the same language according to welfare. So we're, I was very busy trying to build this system there. And that's the moment I also discovered, like, look, there's the zoo and there's the modern zoo. And the zoo just does things that they do. And then you have the modern zoo who's trying to, you know, part of conservation projects, but also think about, look, we have, let's say 10 species. 
um, one of these species it, exhibit is just too small. If we want to give them the welfare that they need, we have to mm. get rid of a couple other species to give them then more space to be mm. able to make the animal thrive again. Mm -hmm. And that's a modern Jew. That's how they think, that's how they go. And I got very intrigued by this book, which I read. It's called Zoo Ethics um, from Jenny Gray, I think. And she, like, then I thought, you know what? There's still so much to learn. There's, and, and, you know, welfare papers pop out continuously all over the place. And then I, I think, you know, that's all fine and nice. But who is there to implement that theory into practice? Because still, nobody's actually stepping up and saying, ah, let's do this then. Mm -hmm. No, everybody is um, like not doing it. And my question was, why aren't people not doing it? And then I discovered a lot of people, they disagree, not because they disagree. It's just because they do not know how to change it. Mm -hmm. So the safest choice is doing the same thing. Yeah. And that's the, the difference. So, and then I discovered this and I thought, you know what? Then I need to do more presentations. Then I need to guide people more. Then I need to start coaching more. Then I need to start giving them, you know, simplify the system because mm -hmm. all the papers, all the books are in English. In Europe, well, we have a, a ton of countries and, you know, a lot of countries, their English is not as good, very mm -hmm. surfaced. So how can I make the science of behavior understandable easy for people yeah because the and majority the, of the literature is all in english it's all in english mm -hmm. and a lot of times like you know and i still have hard time sometimes with it when, when people say well peter eh, we need to change this program can you figure out stuff and then i'm directly jumping into the the, the peer-reviewed science articles mm -hmm. well i have a hard time reading them as well because it's not surface english no it's, it's very complex academic yeah. Mm -hmm. complex english and i'm just like reading and they're like reading again <laughs> mm -hmm. reading again it's like okay whatever yeah and it's not going in <laughs> <laughs> it just doesn't yeah. pop in but and then my english is pretty good i think so imagine that you have a person you know um from another country where the english is not developed that well yet mm -hmm. that person is not going to read a paper like this which no. directly means is that that person doesn't take in that information to better the welfare mm. of the animals in their zoo mm -hmm. then we have a problem so and then i was like you know what at the end of the story it's actually very simple and i have to explain the people how simple it can be what that paper actually means or that book or that whatever and that's yeah. one of the missions that i have like you know what guys it's not it, it's not that hard it's not that hard. This is how punishment works. This is how reinforcement works. And this is the psychological outcome from this. And this is the psychological outcome from that. If I explain it very simple and easy, it all of a sudden makes sense. But mm. if you read it, you're like. No, you know, absolutely. Easy. Yeah. And no, I think I, I think it's a really, really great um, thing that you're doing. And, you know, the idea of the modern zoo and how we move forward and how we improve welfare and training and everything like it all comes together, you know, very, very neatly. And I also know a lot of marine mammal trainers who are very interested in going to the zoo world and vice versa, a lot of zookeepers that are very interested in going to marine mammals. So what advice would you give anyone that's looking to make that crossover you know especially hopefully these days where you know the zoo world is kind of improving things on the training side and hopefully the marine park world is improving things on you know the education kind of side or, or whatever you want to say you know there's quite some things actually because the zoo world is it's like another world 
it's a completely other world. People told me before, Peter, remember, it's not a dolphin. Eh? And I was like, okay, all right, okay, okay. You know what? The thing is, is like, I would direct, I directly think, all right, so apparently that person does not understand that behavioral science is the same across. So now I can respond like this, but what this, why, what, 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 or I can be like, okay, why did that person respond this way? Mm -hmm. So one of the tips that I have to give is that the knowledge that we have in the marine mammal world where training is the standard base, in the zoo, you don't have that. So if people tell you specific things that might hurt you or might be like, oh, what? It's because their understanding is different mm -hmm. and that's completely fine. But it's very difficult for a marine mammal person to start changing the zoo world if they use methods they believe in because they never have seen anything better than this mm -hmm. ever. Well, in my case, I've seen better. So I have a comparison they don't have a comparison. So, and that's difficult. You have to be humble. You have to be respectful. You have to prove yourself. So even me now in the zoo, like I come in with 16, 17 years experience, people that do not know who I am, which is 100% fine, means I have to prove myself directly. And they don't care about me working for 16, 17 years. They don't go on the internet in their, in their free time to read stuff. They don't. So I have to prove myself. And I can either do it by speaking, but that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Your actions will prove yep. yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's something that you have to be extremely patient. Extremely patient. And, you know, for me, that went sometimes so far as I've, I go into specific situations where I'm like, all right. I'm, in my head, it goes, I'm going to change that if that is next week or in two years, but that's going to change. And then yeah. I will find a way. I will find a way to do this because mm -hmm. my goal is the animal. That's my goal. Yes, absolutely. And I need, you know, and I need to do that not by changing the animal, but by changing the perception of the mm -hmm. trainers to coach them to willing to change it for me. And that's the difficult part. Yeah. Amazing. I think that's, it's so worthwhile. And I think everything that you've spoken about today is, you know, so inspiring. And I think, you know, people are going to learn a lot from it. Um, so thank you so much for, uh, for coming on the podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm happy to hear that. Yeah, well, I can talk for hours. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for being here, Peter. Of course, no problem. Thank you for having me. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you have enjoyed this week's episode, then please do not forget to like, rate, and subscribe. Sharing on social media is always a bonus, and I will catch you guys next week. <laughs>